Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a hurricane in 1559 prevented Pensacola from becoming the first permanent European settlement in North America. They didn't have any kind of prior warning system, uh, and so when the storm came up, they realized it was going to be bad, I think, but there really was not a whole lot that they could do. The city of St. Augustine is the first permanent European settlement in North America, but it wasn't always located where it is now. When St. Augustine was about eight months old, its residents decided to relocate the town. Shakespeare in Florida and letters from the Seminole Wars, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Adrian Villart was the most popular composer in Europe in 1559 when Don Tristan de Luna landed at what would become Pensacola, accompanied by 1,500 men, women, and children. They brought ships full of supplies to establish what they hoped would be the first permanent European settlement in North America. For more than half a century, the Spanish had been exploring La Florida, but had yet to establish a colony here. Dr. Della Scott Ireton is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network Northwest Region. Well, the Spanish, of course, arrived uh, in, in 1492 with Columbus, um, fairly quickly spread to Mexico with Cortez. Uh, from there, the Spanish began to send out expeditions to explore this wonderful new world that they had found. And so we have Narvaez coming through Florida. We have Soto. We have Coronado in the southwest. There are also expeditions uh, that kind of skirted the coast of the northern Gulf Coast to see what was there. Uh, with the idea of placing settlements uh, to do a couple of things, to help establish the Spanish claim to this new world by having viable settlements in place, uh, to also help uh, stake their claim to keep other nations out who were interested in expanding into the new world, in particular the English and the Dutch and the French, uh, and also to help protect the route of the treasure fleets uh, that skirted the Gulf Coast on their way to Havana to rendezvous before they began the trip back to Spain. So it was vital for them to establish some, some settlements on the northern Gulf Coast. With significant financial backing, Don Tristan de Luna sailed from Spain in 1558 with the hope of establishing a permanent settlement where Pensacola is now, but the effort was abandoned in 1561. Luna was selected by Don Luis de Velasco, uh, who was uh, the viceroy of New Spain, the representative of the king, who was Philip II. And he had been ordered to uh, establish a colony on the northern Gulf Coast. And Luna was chosen. Uh, he had experience. He had been with Coronado in the southwest. Uh, he also was married to a wealthy widow, so he could help fund the expedition. 
Uh, and at the time, it was the largest, best funded, best equipped expedition uh, to date that was intended to found this colony. And there were 1,500 people, including entire families, men, women, and children. There were Aztec Indian mercenaries to act as a security force. There were African-American slaves. There was livestock, horses, and cattle, and pigs, and chickens, and all of the tools, and supplies, and farming equipment, and building materials, everything he would need to build an a entire Spanish town on the edge of the wilderness. Floridians today are warned for weeks when a hurricane is approaching. With no Doppler radar or vigilant TV meteorologists, Don Tristan de Luna and his followers were caught by surprise in 1559. Well, only about a month after they got there, they were hit by a really violent hurricane. And uh, even though the Spanish knew about hurricanes uh, in, in the late summer and fall in the Caribbean basin, they didn't have any kind of prior warning system. Uh, and so when the storm came up, they realized it was going to be bad, I think, but there really was not a whole lot that they could do. Uh, and it really demolished the, the fleet and with it the chances for success of the colony. And uh, Luna himself wrote in a letter that there was a great loss by many seamen and passengers of their lives as well as their property. Uh, and uh, most of the ships went aground, uh, save only about three, which were the smaller vessels, their big galleons and store ships, where they still had all their supplies, including all of their food, because they hadn't had a chance to unload it yet, went to the bottom of the bay. While not much physical evidence of the Luna Settlement attempt exists, there are many historical documents that provide us with information about the expedition. Tell us Scott Ayrton. A lot of the correspondence, especially between Luna and his boss, uh, Velasco, back in New Spain, uh, existed, and a lot of it was Luna begging for additional supplies after the hurricane had, had decimated the expedition. Uh, Velasco had trouble trying to accumulate more ships and more supplies to send. He had kind of raided the entire countryside of New Spain, to furnish the expedition in the first place. Uh, Velasco was also responsible for making sure the annual treasure fleets got back to Spain on time. That was absolutely crucial. And so Velasco had trouble then supplying more equipment for Luna and more food. Um, we know that the Luna survivors wandered up into the interior of the southeast, um, as far as north Georgia, trying to find food from the natives and were not very successful. The natives already had experience with DeSoto uh, and didn't really want any part of these new Spaniards. And uh, before they finally got back to Pensacola, and then the survivors were evacuated, and, uh, and the, the settlement attempt was abandoned at that time. Long before becoming a regional director for the Florida Public Archaeology Network, in 1992, Della Scott Ireton was part of a team that discovered and excavated the Emanuel Point shipwreck. It was believed that the ship was part of Don Tristan de Luna's fleet. It was tremendously exciting. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of what was called the Pensacola Shipwreck Survey, and it was a program of the Florida Bureau of Archaeological Research and uh, funded by a Coastal Zone Management Grant. And our job was to survey Pensacola Bay for historic shipwrecks. Uh, and we were surveying in an area that was surmised to be one of the possible Luna landing sites when we found the shipwreck. And it was myself and, and two colleagues and a team of three of us became very close friends through all those uh, days, long days surveying. Uh, and uh, so we were just absolutely tickled when we when we found it. And uh, from that point on, we stopped surveying and then turned our attention to excavation on that wreck. And and it was absolutely a, a privilege to to be able to work on on such a significant shipwreck. As Della Scott Ireton points out, underwater archaeology poses some unique challenges. Underwater archaeology is very equipment intensive, uh, and it's uh, especially even in the well even in the case of Emanuel Point, which is fairly shallow. It's only in about twelve feet of water, but the water is very murky. You can't see the bottom floating on the surface. And uh, so it's uh, a lot like trying to, to do archaeology, but only being able to see maybe a foot around you at a time. We used to laugh about doing archaeology by Braille. 
uh, and uh, doing a lot of it by touch. And uh, so it's, it is very challenging. Um, instead of shovels and wheelbarrows, we have boats and induction dredges and pumps that break down all the time. Uh, and uh, it's heavy equipment to load and unload every day, and it's, it's just real, uh, real challenging. The process of excavating the Emanuel Point shipwreck involved carefully uncovering objects underwater, then safely getting them to the surface where they could be examined further. That's correct. Uh, using uh, induction dredges to very carefully uncover, uh, we excavate in layers and uh, in, in excavation units, just like our colleagues on land do. Uh, we do, Just because we're in uh, a watery environment with poor visibility is no excuse not to do good archaeology. Uh, and uh, so it's a matter of, of not only excavating, but then recovering the artifacts, which once they're waterlogged, you don't want to let them dry out. And so you have to be very careful about keeping the artifacts in water, baggies full of water, and getting them back to the lab and keeping them in water and putting them in proper conservation. And it's, it, doesn't just, it doesn't stop in the field. It keeps on and on. In fact, some of the artifacts uh, from these early excavations in, in 92 to 95 are still in conservation. The work of Della Scott Ireton and her team was rewarded with the discovery of some fascinating artifacts. Preserved in the anaerobic environment were ceramics, olive pits, shoes, a toy, and other objects. I think some of the things that were really most amazing to me were these wonderful organics that were preserved in, in this real thick, greasy, mucky layer that was uh, right on top of the timbers and down in the ballast. And, and that's the remains of all the, the organic material that was in the ship accumulated in the bilges and, and formed this anaerobic environment. And because it was anaerobic, there's no oxygen, which means there's no bacteria. And so we had some really beautiful organic preservation. We found hundreds of rat bones, the earliest evidence of the black rat in North America. Um, the bones were well-preserved enough that uh, an uh, analysis showed that they had been growing up with a disease called rickets, uh, which is a bone deformity caused from lack of vitamin D. Uh, we also found um, a lot of remains of insects, cockroaches, and hide beetles, which is a clue to maybe what the ship had been doing before it was sent on the expedition carrying hides, uh, which was a major export from New Spain. Uh, we found shoe soles, leather shoe soles, and pieces of rigging, rope, and that sort of thing. Just amazing preservation. The excavation team also brought in metal detectors to aid in their search for artifacts. We did. We used the metal detectors uh, to look around the uh, ex outside the ballast uh, to see what we could find. And in what turned out to be the bow of the ship, the galley area, uh, we found a large copper cooking cauldron. Uh, we found uh, a jug, kind of a jug-shaped uh, pot that was made of copper lined with tin that would have been used on the ship's stove for heating porridge or or soup or something with a real wide base. Um, some other galley materials, things like uh, pots and pans and that sort of thing. So really amazing things. The artifacts recovered from the Emanuel Point shipwreck helped to identify the ship as one from Don Tristan de Luna's fleet. Yeah, it was a lot of circumstantial evidence. You know, we, as we like to joke, we, there was no board with Luna was here carved on it that we could find, but all of these kind of uh, circumstantial uh, little artifact finds that kind of helped piece together that this was Luna, and it was things um, like uh, Aztec Indian uh, pottery, and we knew that he had Aztec Indian mercenaries with him, um, ceramics from the proper time period, um, that sort of thing, that all these kinds of things that came together that, that showed us that this must have been one of Luna's ships. In several cases, Della Scott Ireton and her team used artwork from the mid-1500s to help identify what exactly they had found. It's really wonderful to be able to use uh, paintings and, and woodcuts and that sort of thing. Uh, we found a woodcut by Peter Bruegel the Elder of an alchemist shop, and in the corner of the alchemist shop is a little jug, like the cooking jug that we had found. 
Um, there's another famous painting called Woman Cooking Eggs, which has a mortar and pestle in it that's almost identical to the mortar and pestle that we found. After about 40% of the Emanuel Point ship was excavated, the team made the decision to stop exploring the site. With the idea that archaeologists in the future will have much better tools and techniques than we can even dream of, I often use the example of DNA analysis. Uh, Think about 50 years ago, who would have ever dreamed we could extract DNA from preserved brain material? And think what our colleagues 50 years or 150 years in the future will be able to do. So the idea was to leave half of the ship unexcavated with the idea that our future colleagues will be able to do it better than we can and learn more. Although work has stopped on the Emanuel Point 1 ship, a second Emanuel Point shipwreck has been discovered in more recent years, providing more research opportunities. The University of West Florida has a fantastic maritime archaeology program, uh, one of the only places in the nation where you can take underwater archaeology at an undergraduate level as well as a graduate level. Uh, and they're very fortunate because their laboratory is right in the backyard, um, and so students can work in Pensacola Bay. Uh, research continues. A second vessel from the Luna fleet was discovered in 2006 by the university, and they've been working on that one in the summertime ever since in their Maritime Archaeology Field School. And it's a really phenomenal opportunity for young students uh, who are thinking of going into the field of maritime archaeology to be able to work on a 16th century Spanish ship. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, and they also are uncovering uh, fascinating objects as well, and, and we're learning even more about this uh, really crucial period in Florida's history. Della Scott Ayrton is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network Northwest Region. You're listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books, video, audio, photographs, and other materials celebrating Florida history. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. When St. Augustine was about eight months old, its residents decided to relocate the town. In May or June 1566, St. Augustine moved to the barrier island today known as Anastasia Island. The settlement's leader, Pedro Menendez, and his captains decided to move to the harbor entrance to remove the town from Indian threats and to better defend against all enemies. The Spaniards hoped that the artillery of the island's fort would scare attackers. Within a month, the residents were building a town, making a custom house, and a storehouse. For five or so years, St. Augustine settlers tried to keep their successive forts and other buildings on the island in repair. But injury could be self-inflicted. At one point, angry men, ready to mutiny, 
set fire to and damaged the second fort that they had built on the island. Historian Eugene Lyons states that he has found no single clear source about the year that St. Augustine moved back to the mainland, but most likely it was 1572. Thirty years after the move to the mainland, an original settler testified that the reason for the move was that the town and the fort eroded into the sea. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. It's believed that William Shakespeare was about 16 months old when Pedro Menendez founded the city of St. Augustine in August 1565. The city of Orlando and one of its primary streets, Rosalind Avenue, were most likely named for characters from the Shakespeare play As You Like It. The Orlando Shakespeare Theater presents more than a dozen productions annually. Janie Gould has more about Shakespeare in Florida. Shakespeare festivals have pretty much died out in Florida since the 1990s, but interest in the great Elizabethan dramatist and poet remains high. That's according to Morris O'Sullivan. He's director of the Florida Center for Shakespeare Studies at Rollins College in Winter Park. Shakespeare has been hanging around in Florida for a long time. Does Florida require the teaching of Shakespeare anymore in the high schools? No, it doesn't, but almost every county's guidelines strongly recommend it, and I don't know any teachers who do not teach Shakespeare. In fact, there seems to be more Shakespeare being taught in our classes than ever before. I wonder why. I think it's because of things like the FCAT, the movement towards a more common curriculum, and of course it's also driven by the kind of textbooks that exist. Textbooks find Shakespeare fairly easy to include. The editions are out there and they're free. They're out of copyright, so people who are compiling textbook anthologies have no problem putting in almost any edition of the Shakespeare that they want to. The bottom line is at work there, too. You were telling me yesterday that China, people in China have an interest in Shakespeare, an interest in Shakespeare in English. English in China is enormously popular. There are about 300 million people studying English today. Colleges and universities require one year of English so that everybody in college is studying English. And the people who are interested in it are mostly interested in its possibility for business. What more and more people are beginning to realize is that studying drama allows people to develop speaking skills. Let me just interject. Reading Shakespeare is difficult enough for native English speakers. I can't imagine a native Chinese person being able to decipher it and learn it readily. Shakespeare is still relatively new to their English curricula. Much of that is growing because of the increased exposure of Chinese academics to the United States. 
O'Sullivan says Chinese students love Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Most ninth graders in Florida read it, too. It's seen as a good starter, something that students can connect with. Since Florida has not only the oldest literary tradition in North America, we have the most diverse tradition. Shakespeare is the perfect writer for us since he appeals to every culture. It is his knowledge of human nature, his extraordinarily rich language, and what Mr. Rogers once told me was his authenticity. Mr. Rogers of TV fame you're talking about? Mr. Rogers of TV fame, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers said that one thing young people always recognize is whether or not people are authentic. And when they read his plays, they know this is real. Young people can see through a phony, and they immediately recognize that not only is Shakespeare not a phony, his characters are as real as anyone gets. And that's probably why Florida schools are expanding the Shakespeare that they're teaching. Our grandchildren will probably be reading more Shakespeare than our grandparents did. As literature becomes even more diverse and people look for those common cores around which we can build some values and dialogue, Shakespeare lies at the very heart of English. Morris O'Sullivan is director of the Florida Center for Shakespeare Studies at Rollins College in Winter Park. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. What was life like on the Florida frontier of the 1830s? Bill Dudley reports on a book that looks at the territory from the point of view of two transplanted New Englanders, two young women who are witness to one of our state's most exciting historical periods. I was absolutely excited because of the fact that there are very few of these kinds of materials available from women in the early 19th century in Florida. These are very rare letters that were actually written from the places where these these events occurred. Florida Southern College historian James Michael Denham. A chance comment from a librarian led him to the discovery of a large group of letters in the West Point Military Academy archive. Letters written by two young women in the Florida of the 1830s and 40s. My first thoughts were these women have something to say that I don't think has been said. And sure enough, after we got into the project, I was looking for similar writings uh, of women in Florida in these pioneer times, and there's really nothing. Keith Honeycutt is chair of the English department at Florida Southern. He and Denham are co-editors of Echoes from a Distant Frontier the Brown Sisters' correspondence from Antebellum, Florida, that provides a window into life in a sparsely populated and turbulent new territory. It's Florida literature at a time when there's practically nothing being written at all, maybe nothing. And certainly I, I can't think of any women in Florida whose voices are recorded this, this early. Corinna and Ellen Brown were sisters who had grown up comfortably in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Their father built and commanded privateers during the War of 1812 and died in a Spanish prison in 1819. 
Three years after the death of their mother, the two sisters and one of their brothers decided to sample life on the Florida frontier. In November 1835, they landed on the coast of the territory then called East Florida. They first settled in Mandarin, Florida, which is below Jacksonville, and they came with a brother, and they were determined to become rich in Florida, growing citrus and mulberry trees for silk culture. This was one of the things that they hoped would would really pay dividends here in the territorial Florida. Staying at first with a wealthy aunt, 23-year-old Corinna and 21-year-old Ellen Brown found East Florida exotic and often exciting. From the beginning, both wrote long descriptive letters to another one of their brothers, an artist who traveled between Europe and upstate New York. Although both sisters at first disdained the idea of marriage, in 1837, Corinna married Dr. Edward Aldrich, a volunteer army doctor stationed in Jacksonville. These letters are important because they shed light on the social, economic, and political history of Florida, and they comment on all aspects of the society that they live in. They, they comment on slavery. They're very much involved in politics. Their insights on the Second Seminole War the uh, the campaigns they describe the massacres that they that they see they witness a lot of the turmoil of the war itself three nights since they burned a house within sight of ours the first we knew of danger our cook who lives in a little cabin came to me about ten o'clock p.m. and told me mr edmund bird's house was on fire in a few minutes the town was in alarm and we could distinctly hear their yells corinna brown was in saint augustine the day captured seminole chieftain osceola was brought in by the soldiers I never saw a more finely formed man, graceful in every limb and motion, an oval face, fine features and mildness and sweetness of expression, very unusual with those of his race. He wore a sort of tunic, of blue cloth and ornamented with colored fringe and beads. Three years after her sister's marriage, Ellen Brown married Lieutenant James Willoughby Anderson, an officer whom she had met at a frontier outpost called Noonansville. These letters are extremely valuable because they tell us about life in Noonansville, Florida, a place that we know nothing about today, and they describe the activities going on in that very isolated frontier community north of present-day Gainesville. Four years after the birth of her third child, Ellen's husband was killed, fighting in General Winfield Scott's army in the Mexican War. Later, she moved with her sister and brother-in-law to Key West, at that time the largest, most prosperous city in Florida, due to the lucrative trade in the salvage of ships wrecked on the nearby reef. We landed on Monday morning the 28th, and never were poor souls more glad to find a haven, for we had been becalmed on the reefs, or among them, and were well-nigh devoured by mosquitoes and sand flies, and alas, these same pests are the bane of southern Florida. Were it not for them, this land would be a paradise. One thing that surprised both the book's editors was how quickly both women took on Southern values. Of course, they both married Southern men, but they also very quickly adapted to the ideas of the South. They had no squeamishness at all about the institution of slavery. Ellen lived up until the time of the Civil War. And even when she was living in New York City, she was determined that the South had the right to secede from the Union. The women left Florida in the early 1850s and headed north. Corinna's husband went to the California gold fields and never returned. She died in an asylum four years later. After struggling to make ends meet throughout the 1850s, Ellen died of cancer in the second year of the war between the states. Although many of their own young dreams were never realized, the two sisters left us a priceless legacy in their descriptions of Florida's colorful frontier. And they write these detailed, 
and wonderful narrative accounts of the frontier, of the characters that they come in contact with, of natural Florida. To me, it's description and narrative, interesting voices. Editors Mike Denham and Keith Honeycutt. Their book is Echoes from a Distant Frontier, published by University of South Carolina Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.